Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and former Executive Director of the Michigan Republican Party, Jeff Timmer. Jeff, good to have you. Glad to be here, Reed. Also on the show today is journalist and senior fellow at FairVote, David Daly. David is the author of Rat Fucked, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, and his latest book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. David, welcome to the show. A pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So before we started recording, David, I said that the name of your book, I think you noted that it was something like redistricting in America, and they didn't think that that was provocative enough. So I think they certainly found the way to describe it that would do it justice. I think it's apt. Unfortunately, my mom can't know I have a book, which is a little bit sad, but (laughs) it's certainly an apt description of what happened. It's always to protect our mothers. (laughs) So guys, today I want to talk about, you know, normally we call it redistricting. Really what we've had is gerrymandering, a term that goes back to literally the founding of the Republic and the political extremism that comes with it. And I had David Pepper on the show last week, who took another look at this from the state angle. So I'm glad we're doing it again today. But first, guys, I want to set the stage briefly by going back a decade or so. So remember, it's in the Constitution that every 10 years we do a census, right? Have to know how many people we have. And also because we're a federal system, you know, we do what's called reapportionment. Every state gets two senators, but the members of the U.S. House are decided based on population. Some states gain seats, like we saw in Texas and Florida. Every 10 years, a state might lose a seat, like New York or California. But what comes along with this census data is not only how many seats they'll have, but how these districts are actually drawn, not only congressional seats, but also state legislative seats. So guys, 10 years ago after the 2010 census, this is during President Obama's first term, Republican operatives like Karl Rove, Ed Gillespie, Chris Jankowski conceived something called RedMap. Now, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about what RedMap was and how did it set the stage for where we are today? Sure. And I think for that, you have to go back two years earlier to the 2008 election, which was a pretty big blue wave, a Democratic supermajority of the U.S. Senate, in addition to the election of our first black president. And I think that there was a sense that the demographics of the nation were changing. If you you know go back and look at the news coverage that night, it doesn't matter if the network is Fox or MSNBC. You've got minds from uh, both sides talking about how the changing nature of the country could really set up a new democratic governing coalition for a generation. And of course, that's not exactly what happened because a handful of those strategists, as you recognized, they understood that while 2008 was a historic election, 2010 could be much more consequential because it was a redistricting year and that redistricting represented a path back to power. Republicans essentially, with RedMap, spend about $30 million, and they target 107 state legislative seats in 16 states. 
with the understanding that if they were to control these state legislatures in key places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Indiana, they could then lock Democrats out of the room when it came time to redistrict. And with the help of the kinds of sophisticated technology that had come online over the course of the previous decades since the last time we had redistricted, they could really draw lines that locked Democrats out of power for the next decade at the state legislative level and the congressional level. Right. And so, Jeff, you know, as a young operative, I don't think I was really aware of any of this until I got out of Washington, D.C., got into California and saw how the process worked. And so, you know, it's just a constant reminder that the I'm going to call it the conservative movement has been so sophisticated and so dedicated to this kind of stuff where they understand very well how the rules work and they change the game to make sure that the game works for them and only them. I was actually, I kind of backed my way into redistricting when I first started working in politics. It was early 1991, and I found myself sitting in front of what was probably like uh, equivalent to a Commodore 64 trying to draw maps. And you hit the nail on the head when looking at the way that the Republicans in Michigan at the time had tackled redistricting after getting their ass handed to them back in the 1980s round of redistricting. Some folks, good political minds at the Michigan Chamber, at the Michigan Republican Party, people like Spence Abraham had gotten together and set up an outside fund to pull together money, people, technology, hire the best lawyers. And this was for the 1990-91 round of redistricting, and we're way out ahead then in working with the RNC. And by 2001, the RNC was very much engaged in similar efforts in states all around the country. And by 2011, as David writes about in his book, they had really weaponized the process. I always say a lot of things like, you know, we didn't get to a 6-3 Supreme Court overnight. It took 40 years, right? And so as much as we talk about Donald Trump and sort of the opening of Pandora's box and the political situation we find ourselves in now, the truth is, is that a lot of this stuff has been going on for decades. I think that's right. As Jeff aptly notes, you can trace Republican interest in redistricting, you know, certainly the interest in the federal society in appointing friendly justices to courts. And, you know, Democrats fell asleep on a lot of this from the uh, school board on up, right? They thought that if they won the White House, everything would be okay. And they did not understand the importance of the state legislative races and the like. You know, I mean, I've talked with Eric Holder about this. And I asked Eric Holder, when did you first hear about RedMap? And he says, well, it was not long after the 2012 election. We thought we'd had a pretty good night that night. And I'm, I'm outside the Oval Office. I'm with the president. We're looking at the numbers and we can't understand what happened to us in places like North Carolina and Wisconsin. And we thought we had a good night. And he's like, I hadn't heard of Red Map. It was just like something on the periphery. Well, Barack Obama's second term effectively ended on the night that he was elected to it. Republicans controlled the House 234-201, even though Democrats won 1.6 million more votes nationwide, gained seats in the Senate. States that voted for o Obama, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Virginia, Ohio, all sent delegations to Washington that were 70, 75 percent Republican. And the state legislatures in those states did not budge for a decade. So, Jeff, when my dad worked on Capitol Hill, as the listeners have heard, and when I worked for Governor George W. Bush and President George W. Bush, I thought that 
again, I was a junior squirrel, but I thought that we were trying to do something good, right? At the time, a Republican vision of governance, such as it was. But now it turns out, you know, as Stuart Stevens, our partner, likes to say, it was all a lie. Were there really these dark forces at work the whole time that we were just blissfully blind to? Or did it metastasize as it went on? Yeah, it did. I mean, I look back to the red map and I was running the Michigan Republican Party at the time that started to be conceptualized. I remember some very early meetings in kind of 2005, 2006 in anticipation of that next cycle of redistricting. And, you know, I was eagerly participating in the map drawing. You know, the smoke-filled room where the maps were drawn was actually the room I'm sitting in right now. Back in 2011, they were drawn on my computer sitting on this very room. And at the time, I thought it was doing the right thing for the right reasons. And I remember when David came and talked to me for the book, for Ratfucked. And at the time, I was still... You were in the Matrix. I was still in the Matrix, but I was more interested in gloating about the success at that point than recognizing the damage. Uh, this was pre-2016. I don't know, it was 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. And so this was before the rise of Trump. This was when we thought, you know, the Tea Party was the most toxic thing we had seen in our politics in a long time. And that seems almost quaint now in retrospect. But you can draw a straight line from, I think, the Nixon Southern strategy to the theological rise with Pat Robertson in the 80s to the Tea Party to Donald Trump. I mean, that's an evolution and maybe a series of like rocket boosts that have sent the crazy into higher and higher orbit as time has gone on. But the rise of extremism, redistricting itself isn't entirely to blame, but it's certainly a contributing factor. So I helped pass Prop 11 in California, which created a redistricting commission there. I helped pass Prop 4 here in Utah, where I live, that did something similar. In Michigan, where Jeff lives, in 2018, I believe, Jeff, a redistricting commission passed. Ohio has one. And so in some of these places, I don't know, quote unquote, has it worked? In a place like Ohio, we've seen that they have a commission, but basically like just excise Democrats from the map as far as representation is concerned. And then you get to a place like Texas, which has had enormous growth since the last census, picked up not one but two congressional seats. If it's not a majority minority state, it's close. In its redistricting process, now communities of color and Democrats will be vastly underrepresented. So talk to us a little bit about how you see this current redistricting cycle as it comes to an end. I think it was a little bit delayed because the census was so screwy with COVID and Trump fucking with it and everything else. But how do you see us headed into next year with these current lines? What we have seen is really what Paul Smith warned about at the Supreme Court when um, he was arguing the Common Cause versus Rucho case back in 2019. He said that if this court does not do something to rein in partisan gerrymandering before the next census, that we would see a festival of partisan gerrymandering unlike any that the country has seen ever since. And the court effectively closed the federal courthouse doors to these claims at precisely the time that we needed an independent judiciary to step up the most. And as a result, they have given lawmakers a green light and effectively no speed limit for the kinds of gerrymanders that they have been able to produce. And we've seen it now, you know, Democrats and Republicans over the course of the last couple of months drawing maps that wildly advantage themselves, that effectively wipe competitive districts off the map and have frozen and locked in 
partisan red and blue seats across the map. I mean, in many ways, we probably shouldn't even bother holding congressional elections every two years until 2031. When you look at what has just come out of North Carolina, you know, that is effectively a frozen 11-3 map, and it's not an 11-3 state. What is happening in Ohio is going to be a 13-2 map, and, you know, Ohio is not an 85-15 state. Donald Trump won 53% of the vote there. And what Democrats are doing in Illinois and Oregon. And New York. What they will likely do in New York and Maryland. Except here's the math on this, though. I mean, Republicans are going to be able to do this in Texas, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, probably get themselves somewhere between eight and 11 seats there. They're going to wipe the competitive seat in Oklahoma off the board, the competitive seat around Indianapolis off the board. They're going to draw themselves a new seat in New Hampshire. They're going to take Nashville and crack that in half and get rid of the Jim Cooper seat. The Yarmouth seat in Louisville is probably gone. The David seat in Kansas. And the Democrats are going to grab a couple in New York. I would say three is probably the max that they can get under the Voting Rights Act. And then you're looking at Oregon, Maryland, a net of two in Illinois. In Illinois, they killed Adam Kinzinger. (laughs) They did. Yeah. Which, you know, just doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, I mean, it's a plus one Democratic map and a minus one Republican map. And so Republicans are probably going to come out of this process looking better in 10 to 12 seats, I would say net. It's only a five seat difference in Congress right now. And what I think is important, I mean, we talk about 2012, right, when Democrats win 1.4 million more votes and only hold 201 seats. A Democratic candidate's won 4.6 million more votes in 2020 and only hold five more seats. So redistricting alone could tip the balance here. And it just locks the people's house into this same set of minority rule. Well, and Jeff, looking at this purely electorally, the types of candidates that this will produce and the kinds of members this will produce, especially on the Republican side, is, as you know, you know, everybody's been looking back at Virginia in the last 10 days and saying, oh, we have to watch out for a Glenn Youngkin or whatever. But the truth is, is that Youngkin paid for his own primary. So, like, that's not the right way to look at it. And in a lot of these places, even conservative Republicans, there's no way for them to get far enough to the right to be, you know, pure Trumpy, to be pure green, to be pure Gosar. Right. So you could have a situation in which even people we don't like very much, you know, are the normal choice in a primary in these gerrymandered districts. They now win. And the core of the Republican conference or, David, the core of these Republican legislatures is even crazier now than it is. Yeah. If you think that the Republican Party as represented in Washington in the House and Senate is crazy now or in state legislative capitals, it's going to be batshit crazier come 2023. There are going to be far more Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boeberts and Matt Gaetzes than there are Adam Kinzinger's or Lynn Cheney's or Fred Upton's. Even if they somehow don't get majority, they're going to move further to that extreme radical part of the spectrum. The battle is going to be who can win in a primary. And in many states, You only have to get a plurality in that primary. You don't have to get to a runoff. You don't have to achieve a coalition that gets you to 50%, even among Republicans. So somebody who is able to cobble together a tinfoil hat coalition of 25% of the vote can win a primary. You know, they can believe that, you know, that there are Democrats in subterranean Washington basements that are eating and drinking blood of babies. You know, that's the kind of QAnon nonsense that's going to become even more normal in mainstream in the Republican Party, not the lunatic fringe. It's going to be mainstream. 
My favorite story there is out of North Carolina in the last cycle. I mean, Republicans came in after the 2010 elections and they famously said, we're going to draw a 10-3 map here because we think that's what's best for the nation. And in order to do that, they had to crack the hippie vegan city of Asheville over in the Western Mountains in half. And it's the largest city out there, but it's also surrounded by conservative hill towns. Isn't that Madison Cawthorn's district? It had been Heath Shuler's district oh, right. for many years. It, it was a district that had gone back and forth throughout the 2000s. And in 2011, Shuler looks at the new map that draws a line straight through the middle of Asheville, puts you know half of the vegan cafes in one district, half the feminist bookstores in the other. And he says, I can't win here. He goes off for a, you know, a nice career as an energy lobbyist, much more lucrative and high paying. Well, and certainly probably more successful than his professional football career. Yeah, that's for sure, right? And a man named Mark Meadows read the temperature of that district. And in a multi-candidate race, as Jeff talks about, he won a plurality of the vote by running as a birther. You can find the moment on YouTube in which he goes off and says, you know, at a town hall, I'm going to send Barack Obama back to Kenya or wherever it is he comes from. And he knew in that district that stance was going to be enough. I think he won the first round with about 38 percent of the vote. And in that moment, redistricting sent Mark Meadows on his path to political power. And so, Jeff, if these people hate government so much, especially the Republicans, why do they keep running for office? They crave the power, the notoriety. It's ego and it's a lust for power. I don't think you can underscore in the last, especially 20 years, the us versus them mentality that has manifested itself as a cancer in the Republican Party. The continual state of grievance, the heightened every day, who do I direct my ire at and who do I get the people who support me to point their anger and ire at? It's an outlet valve. I mean, for them, it seems somewhat cathartic, I guess, to stoke the mob, have them get their pitchforks and torches and go harass those people who are different, who are threatening them. And rather than politics existing between the 40-yard lines where people have to build a coalition that wins in November that sometimes includes people who don't look like them. Who shop at the vegan bookstore. Right, who shop at the vegan bookstore. So their campaigns are looking in the mirror and shouting. And that has led to this kind of toxic position where the American experiment hangs by a thread. And I don't say that to be hyperbolic. You know, and David, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's the ad that dropped a couple of weeks ago for a woman running, I believe, for Congress in Nevada. She wears a very tight red dress. She walks out of a pickup truck, like in high heels in the desert, and shoots beer bottles, CRT, socialism, blah, 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 right? And of course, it picks up steam because if we weren't in 2021, like this person would be like a joke, right? Like this would be something from a Saturday Night Live skit. I don't even know what district she's in. But the point is, is like she knew exactly where she needed to go to win a primary in that particular district, and she was willing to go there. So it's a long way of asking. In your research, what have you seen about the type of person that is now willing to engage on that level as these districts are more and more extreme? I think that's right. I think what you are seeing is that when districts are drawn to be as uncompetitive as this, it becomes a race to the loony fringe. And it empowers the loony fringe. Gerrymandering helped build a caucus of Jim Jordans and Marjorie Taylor Greens and Mark Meadows and, and Madison Cawthorn. And you are going to have more Cawthorns and Greens and Jordans in this next house. And the state houses around the country are going to be a breeding ground for the next generation 
of these candidates. This is a dangerous moment. I mean, I agree with Jeff entirely on this. You know, I don't think it's hyperbolic at all. You had a majority of the Republican caucus in January 6th who were willing to overturn the results of the Pennsylvania and Arizona elections effectively and not seat those electors. And that, I think, is what we're headed towards in 2024, would be state capitals and members of Congress where members simply refuse to recognize the integrity of any election in which their side does not win. This is one of those things, too, to take it down a level into the state legislative piece, Jeff, in your state, where there's already a Republican legislature, a sympathetic legislature to Donald Trump and his complaints. You have Governor Whitmer up for reelection. You know, this is something we've just started talking about. But my concern is that when you mix a noxious, gerrymandered legislature, Trumpy legislature, with a Republican governor, that come 2024, it doesn't matter what the outcome is. They'll either send only one slate of electors, the one they approve, or they'll send two and just sort of let Vice President Harris juggle them from the chair and figure out what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I think 2022 is going to be the Armageddon of American democracy when it comes to what's at stake. The amount of money that's going to come in from outside sources on both the left and the right, because who controls these legislatures? Who controls offices that are usually, you know, these down-ballot offices like Secretary of State, like Attorney General, that don't get outside tens of millions of dollars pouring in? People have seen what's at stake, and I don't think there's going to be any limit to the amount of money that's going to be pouring into these down-ballot and legislative races. Because, you know, even when it comes to the appointing of these very nondescript people on local certification boards, the Republicans in Michigan and elsewhere, they are replacing those who certified the last election with Trump loyalists who effectively they've gone in, in newspaper interviews and effectively said, I would not have certified the last election and I'm not going to certify the next election unless things are changed. And they're in position to kind of throw a wrench into the certification process, not to stop it. Courts will jump in and say, you have to certify. But by the time we get to that point, the wheels are coming off. The faith and the integrity of the vote is already in peril. And if we're in now weeks-long legal battle about whether or not the count is accurate, whether or not it should be certified, that's when you get these Duck Dynasty cosplayers, you know, like show up at the Michigan Capitol with their guns, showing up at all these local election boards and offices around the country, threatening and weaponizing the who counts the votes, who houses the votes, where the ballots are secured. And that's where the wheels come off of this. And I think that's more likely to happen after 2022 in advance of 2024 than just the concern about what happens if Trump runs again in 2024. So, David, we've run the tape. We are now, as a country, Thelma and Louise. We have driven the car into the canyon. So now talk to me in your latest book. It's called Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. How do we run the tape back? How do we pull the caddy back away from the abyss? It's a great question. And I do believe it's possible. I honestly believe it's possible. And I feel that way because I went out around the country in 2018, 2019, and I embedded with a lot of these groups that were working to bring change, that were working to bring redistricting reform to Utah and Missouri and Ohio. And these are not blue states, right? They're not even necessarily purple states. A lot of these are red states. I mean, I went out along with a group called Reclaim Idaho that won a Medicaid expansion 
in a state so bright red that you can usually count the number of Democrats in the state legislature on one hand. Well, and we've seen measures like $15 minimum wage pass as well, right? Yeah. And when you go out and when you try to persuade your neighbors on these issues, I still genuinely feel this way, that voting rights and redistricting and the integrity of elections is still an issue that big majorities of Americans, whether Democrats, Republicans, independents, they do not want to see these elections turned into rigged contests for even their own side. You still have huge majorities, 70, 75 percent of the country backing things like the Freedom to Vote Act, backing things like independent redistricting. When felony reenfranchisement is on the ballot in Florida, it wins 64 percent because it's a basic question of fairness. But look what happened, right, which is DeSantis and the legislature there basically passed a poll tax to prevent it. You're exactly right. And that's the challenge here is I believe that citizens want elections to be fair, whether they are red, blue, purple states, but that there is an element within our politics and it is an element that is deeply embedded in our politics and that controls state legislatures and controls state Supreme Courts that are willing to do whatever it takes to hold on to power and that will find any loophole that they can Redistricting in Ohio, redistricting in Arizona, Virginia, where citizens have tried to make the process better and partisans have refused to do so or they found any loophole that they can and driven a truck through it. Florida, where you effectively add a Jim Crow poll tax onto an effort to return voting rights to people who have done their time. Nonviolent offenders. Nonviolent. So this is a war between citizens and their government that is determined to enact a deep and enduring conservative minority rule, regardless of what voters want. We are a changing multiracial nation, and you can use things like redistricting and rigging voting rules in order to turn the uh, clock back on that. So, Jeff, I want to ask two questions. One is, you know, these folks that get elected, and you know Michigan, Republicans in particular, if it came down to I have to vote to uphold the Constitution, uphold, let's say, an electoral vote count, or I have to sit quietly and let the chaos engulf the country, will they stand up or will they sit quietly? Most will sit quietly. We saw it in the last election. There were seven Republicans from Michigan in the House of Representatives, three of whom are tinfoil hat batshit crazy. But there were five members of those seven who were part of the Texas lawsuit. Two of them peeled off. They didn't want to go so far as to not certify the election, but they sat on their hands while January 6th was going on. And since January 6th happened, they've kind of joined the insurrection ex post facto. They love to moisten their finger and put it into the wind. They look at the map and see they kind of live near each other. And they live near the two members of Michigan's Republican delegation who voted for impeachment, Fred Upton and Pete Meyer. But what they've done is they've, those two members who kind of went off at the lawsuit, and I think they're reflective of a lot of Republicans, they know it's wrong, but they cynically are manipulating the process in acting like they're part of the, the, the crazy crowd because they're anticipating a primary against somebody who's sane. And so they know that crazy wins the next primary. So, David, this is all enough to make you want, well, I don't drink anymore, but it's enough to make me want to start drinking again. So how do you see this? 
how does the individual American who is not thinking about redistricting, who is not thinking about gerrymandering, who frankly is sick to death of politics and who could blame them, how do we wake them up just long enough to go, you got to stand up? I had Sebastian Younger on a couple of months ago, and he said, as an American, you should vote, give blood and serve jury duty. All we're asking for is for them to vote, right? One out of three. It's not even a meatloaf thing, right? It's not even two out of three ain't bad. So like, how do we convince otherwise patriotic Americans, but Americans who are dealing with a chaos none of us expected to wake up long enough to stave off disaster? Well, it's one reason why I'm so grateful for the Lincoln Project and all the work you're doing on the Republican side of the aisle. We need good Republicans in this moment to stand up for a democracy, to stand up for voting rights, to stand up for all of those things that we once considered inalienable, right? Government by the consent of the governed. We like to think that it can't happen here, right? But it can, and it is. This is a slow motion loss of democracy that is taking place around the country in state capitals before our very eyes. And in this moment, we need to put aside the sense that it can't happen here. We need to put aside the red and blue clothes we sometimes wear into political battles about other things. There will be time for some of that later. This is a moment in which the number one concern of all of us has to be whether or not our votes still count, whether a majority of us can still stand up and change our government when we want to. And this is the moment. It is happening right now in our lifetimes, and we've got to be ready and prepared. And it means voting for people who will defend democracy. You know, guys, sometimes I think about folks watching a tsunami. The water's rushing away from the shore. No one can really figure out what's going on. There's like a boat sitting, you know, on the seabed 500 yards from the coastline. And all of a sudden, people see this wall of water coming. And by then, you know, for many people, it's too late. And I feel like that's a little bit of what people feel like is going on now, which is they know something's not right, but they haven't yet been confronted with what's coming. Exactly. And I think this whole process underscores how critical it is that we have uniformity at the federal level to oversee this process from voting rights to redistricting, to have it where we have these nonpartisan or bipartisan citizens commissions in some states and Republican controlled legislatures in other states and Democratic controlled legislatures in other states and everybody within the states manipulating their own system 50 different ways to send people to Washington, whether it's redistricting or access to voting. It really violates the principle of one man, one vote. And unless we can have that uniformity from the federal level, that guarantee that we're all going to be operating under the same system, playing by the same rules. If we have to start worrying about whoever controls the counting, controls who wins, that makes us no different than a banana republic. And we can't let ourselves get there. Well, amen to that. And, you know, David and Jeff, I think you'd both agree that the last thing in the world, any elected member of any legislature, state or federal wants to do is actually hear from a constituent. So if you're listening, go online, type in your zip code, say, who's my member of Congress? Who's my legislature? Call them and say, enough already. Cut that shit out. And if enough of us start to do that and they start to feel some actual pressure, then, you know, we start to push back on them. And then, you know, a year from today while we're taping this is Election Day. 
but really, you know, probably what, 10 and a half months away from Election Day is, is early votes start. So before we get out of here, David, where can our listeners find you online and where can we find your books? Well, thank you. You can find me online at Twitter. I'm Dave Daly, the number three. I guess there's two other Dave Dailies. Leave them alone. And you can find Ratfucked and Unrigged wherever books are sold. You can find them on Amazon. You can find them in your local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, where have you. And Jeff, how about you? Well, you can find me at Twitter at Jeff Timmer, just my name, T-I-M-M-E-R. I am not safe for work. I can tell you that. So you can find me there. Um, you can connect through the LincolnProject.us. All right. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. David, Jeff, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.